You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. I'm Chris, and today I'm joined with Allison Kennedy Benson. Hey. Hello, Allison. Hi. Hi. <laughs> so Allison is, let me, let me just say this, Allison. When Angie and I started doing this, and we started thinking about interviewing conservation experts, people out in the field, I told her, you were the one we needed to interview, like, right away. Because I know a lot about your background and stuff you've done. So just for the listeners, can you kind of just... Give us your background on, on, you know, how you got involved with rhino conservation. That's specifically what you worked with. You know, what you, the work you've done in Africa, which I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about today, but just briefly. Sure. Um, I kind of took the, the long route with a lot of, lot of luck and a lot of hard work. I think some, some being in the right place at the right time, but I got my undergraduate degree in biology with a zoology track. I had visions of going on to get my master's PhD right away. I was a school person. I wasn't going to leave school until I had my PhD. I at first wanted to do veterinary medicine, but as I started looking at veterinary programs, I realized I was more interested in behavior and animal care as opposed to, you know, just the physiological aspects. So I started looking more into zoology, animal behavior, and thought that I would hopefully go on to advanced degrees in animal behavior. Uh, When I was doing my undergrad, I spent a semester in Panama studying tamarind monkeys and loved being out in the rainforest. I loved being in the bush. Mm. Um, The little primates were awesome, but... I did an internship later on with that was fairly mixed. It was a lot of hoofstock, a lot of great apes. I only spent a few days with rhino during that internship. Mm -hmm. But at that point, it was gorillas all the way. I loved the gorillas. I wanted to go out and study gorillas. That was going to be my life. And mm-hmm. then after I graduated, I did another internship at a wildlife center just with rhinos. And mm-hmm. absolutely that, that after that, that was it. And it hasn't changed <laughs> since. So, um, yeah. I'm, I'm passionate about a lot of things, but from there I knew it was rhinos and I ended up staying there, um, for two internships. And mm-hmm. the vet there was doing a project with a vet in South Africa. Uh, so I went out to assist with that project. And my trip was going to be three months long. It was a month or a month and a half working on the project. And then the veterinarian mm-hmm. in South Africa agreed to let me stay on to get some field experience with him. So I was doing that. And I figured I'd do that, you know, three months trip to Africa, come back to the States, hopefully work in a zoo while I started looking at graduate right. programs. 
And the vets, when I was with him in South Africa, there were some rhino that were, um, had been put into bomas, which are the holding pens that we hold mm-hmm. the rhinos in. So they were in the bomas. They had been there for a few weeks. They were leaving in a few weeks. They were still pretty wild. They needed to be kind of tamed down for their trip up from South Africa to Tanzania. So he sent me off to crate train Mm -hmm. my first four black rhino. And in my mind, having worked with black rhino in the zoo, you know, our whites were super relaxed and the blacks were a little huffy puffy. Mm -hmm. And obviously they have a a reputation of being aggressive. So you want me to do what with black rhino? Like, (laughs) out of your mind. This is nuts. Um, And that was probably the biggest lesson that I learned in the time that I was there, that the black rhino actually tamed down a lot faster than the white rhino, but in the long run, the white rhino tamed Mm -hmm. down more. So it was really interesting coming from zoo environment and seeing those behaviors and then Mm -hmm. dealing with the wild ones. Yeah, I'm going to hand feed a wild black rhino. Yeah, right. right. Um, So (laughs) No, thanks. (laughs) So, yeah, so I did that. And um, my ticket back expired mid-October. They were being moved at the end of October. And I said, well, I can't do a job half half done. So I need to stay with them for another few weeks. Mm -hmm. And so I missed my flight home. And three months turned into 18 months before I went back home the first time. And I ended up going up to Zimbabwe and doing some work with some hand-reared rhino that were being released back into the wild and then started more in the translocations. Oh my gosh, Allison. That's just, it's, again, one of the things that Angie and I both love about this podcast is not only do we get to talk about our passion and learn about a new animal each week is we talk to people like you that are out in the field. And like we say each week, you know, we love the guys that are, and girls, like a, a lot of women do it, you know, fighting the good fight, doing God's work out, out in the environment. So I guess my first question is, cause it's just how oh, I got a million now, you know, what's the process of training a wild caught rhino, you know, to calm down? Like you talked about, like the blacks, calm down quicker, even though the whites calm down uh, more in the long run. So maybe just tell our listeners a little bit like, well, this is the process we go through people that haven't been in a zoo environment working with exotic animals. Sure. Yeah, definitely. A lot of it's just time, time, time and more time. So we would have these animals in, in Boma's. I was sleeping at the Boma's. I was at the Boma's 24 seven, there was, if I ever left there midday to go take a shower, if there was a shower nearby that I could mm-hmm. use, it would mm-hmm. be midday when the rhinos were sleeping. But basically, I would have a radio for them. I'd have constant noise. A lot of the the quiet is great, but if there's quiet and a truck drives by, then it's something to be worked up about. Whereas if mm-hmm. there's constant background noise, noise, they kind of just get used to the fact that noises might be coming up. I was mm-hmm. in places where I didn't have a radio to play. I read to them. I had some very well-read uh, white rhinos. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was it was pretty fun. I would just carry books oh, with great. me and swap books out. You know, not just for myself, but uh-huh. if there was nothing else. I mean, I I spend a lot of time walking around talking to rhinos, but sometimes you run out of things to say. So then it was easier yeah, just to yeah. sit down with a book and read out loud. So a lot of it was just having them get used to my presence, get used to the movement, get used to the noises. Once they were there, I would get the crates in as soon as I could and have them placed mm-hmm. at the BOMA so I could start feeding them in the crates, giving them treats in the crates. 
I never at any point went in with the rhinos. Um, right, right. But the Boma walls were usually made with gum poles that had space enough between them where I could get my hand in there and scratch a leg or a belly, hand mm-hmm. feed treats. But then when we'd get the crate in there, we'd put that right up against the Boma wall and start feeding them in there. So they, they got used to coming in and out. They got to be relaxed. I had rhinos that would take naps in crates. Uh, most of the mm-hmm. time, I couldn't get them long enough to do a lot of work um, on and around the crate, but once or twice I did, mm-hmm. and I would try and do that. So while they're in the crate eating, I'd climb on the crate, I'd bash on it, you know, make noises, because mm-hmm. these are all things that they're going to experience a lot of during their actual translocation. Right, the movement. So we'd spend six to eight weeks doing all that, trying to get them as conditioned to all these outside noises, smells, sounds as possible. And then I kind of became their security blanket. Um, Mm -hmm. They were used to me. They trusted me. They were comfortable with me. So then I would travel with them, get them settled in their new area. And then they'd usually stay two to four weeks on the release side, Mm -hmm. especially with black rhino, as a lot of times the browse, the um, trees and bushes that they're eating, where they're coming Mm -hmm. from, aren't necessarily the same as where they're going. They're usually fairly Mm -hmm. similar. But we want to make sure that they're getting used to the new diet. So we'd hold them, make sure they're recovered from the physical and mental stress of the, the actual move. And mm-hmm. once they're they're ready to go, then we just open the gates and they get to walk out and be wild rhinos again. Oh, that's amazing. It's oh, – you have the dream job, right? Like yeah. I know Angie's told me that before. So. Yeah, for <laughs> so she, sure. Yeah, you know, rhinos, her, her babies right, too. yeah. And uh, yeah, she was telling me about a trip that – you know, when she went out and visited you there and just like, you know, it's great. It's great because you inspired her to do what she's doing. Right. right? So that's awesome. Now, you said you worked a lot with blacks and whites, the southern whites, right? Right. And the relocation from South Africa to Tanzania or other countries in Africa, I guess to explain to the listeners, I mean, I have an idea of what's going on in South Africa. You know, there's really no wild left. It's all managed game parks. Mm-hmm. But maybe talk about that. Like, why would we want to move them right. to other parts of Africa? Sure. I would say the main reason we did that was to try and prevent uh, what's happening now, essentially, with the increase in, po- in poaching that's happened in recent years. Most of the the rhinos were doing really well in South Africa, and so areas that had had rhino in natively in the past that they had been poached out of. There's a lot of political unrest in mm-hmm. Africa. It's very kind of cyclical. So you'd get countries that are thriving and doing well, and you know, sort of breadbasket countries. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. lawlessness, um, corruption. You know, when all that happens, your wildlife suffers for sure. People are starving. Mm-hmm. There's, mm-hmm. you know, war. There's an increase in most on all legal activity, I'm sure. So what we didn't want to happen was, you know, if you have all your rhinos in South Africa and things go turned over there, you're going to end up with losing all of your rhino. So we were mostly trying to restock mm-hmm. areas that rhino had been po- poached out of that felt that they were stable and secure enough to protect populations again. So these animals, mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. Um, subspecies were native to these areas and these areas were now safe enough to protect them once again. So we just wanted to get these other populations going so that we didn't lose everything if something bad happened in one specific country. So right now with rhinos is poaching. And I know, you know, Angie and I talked about it in our second episode or third episode, 
is the trend going up or down for blacks and whites? Poaching, you know? I, I'm not sure about the difference between black and, and white. Poaching, I mm-hmm. numbers are going down slightly. It's not mm-hmm. enough to really have a huge impact on the species right now if the trend continues. So, yeah, I know that there's organizations doing a lot more education in countries where there is a high demand. There's a lot of difference of opinion on anti-poaching strategies, rhino Mm -hmm. protection strategies. There's also, with the increase in poaching and the awareness that's been drawn to it, which is fantastic, there's a huge increase in people trying to make a buck off that. You know, you get lots of organizations raising Mm -hmm. money for Mm -hmm. rhinos that, you know, these people generously from the goodness of their heart, give up their hard-earned money to help save a species, but all that's doing is going into somebody's pocket because they see dollar signs. Uh, So that's one of the big challenges that comes up with all of the attention that it's getting now. No, that's, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's good that the attention's there. You know, like we, Mm -hmm. we are arguing education, 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 you know, that is how, I think we're able to to make an impact here. You know, here I'm in New Zealand, you're in the States. We need to educate those populations mm-hmm. to, you know, what's going on in Africa and maybe we can find ways to provide aid and education there. So yeah, it's, it breaks your heart, you know, and, and especially for someone like you who was in the field, you know, boots on the right. ground and you see it up close and personal, right. you know, so. And the increase in poaching is is partially why my work stopped. My work was so specialized that once the poaching increased, translocations became more on an emergency need, and people stopped Mm -hmm. planning big translocations and just started putting their resources into protecting the populations they already have, which is completely understandable. Mm -hmm. The risk went Mm -hmm. up exponentially, and so my work just kind of trickled away um, with these large-scale planned translocations. It was more of an emergency translocation situation to areas that, you know, from areas that were no longer safe. Now, are you able to to tell us how you would, you know, move the rhino from point A to point B? Sure. So we... Security or things with that? Yeah, yeah. And that definitely became a much greater concern towards the end of my time there. It was something Mm -hmm. that, you know... Obviously, we have scouts with us, but in the beginning years, you didn't really fear, fear, excuse me, you didn't really fear for your life when you're driving Mm -hmm. the rhinos from a park to an airport, say. Uh, Mm -hmm. But certainly Mm -hmm. at the end, it was a much greater concern. So the whole translocation process from start to capture process from start to finish would be, you know, we generally use a helicopter to find the rhinos, usually they're identified ahead of time, the ones that we're going to take. They're darted from the helicopter with drugs that kind of knocks them out. So then we have ground crews. The helicopter pilot and the veterinarian would keep an eye on the rhino until the rhino went down, meaning stopped and went to sleep. Mm-hmm. And then the vet would jump out, start mm-hmm. monitoring, monitoring the rhino right away. The ground crews would come in with trucks. And of course... You're literally driving through the bush a lot of the time. The rhinos don't always stick to the road. So mm-hmm. our trucks would be filled with lots of people with axes, chainsaws, generators, right. um, wow. water, ropes, and all, wow. all the equipment yeah. we need to actually get to the animal. Cause you would literally sometimes have to stop and chop down trees to get in, into the bush wow. to the rhino in some wow. of the more densely vegetated mm-hmm. areas. And so then you'd go in. 
Um, you get the crate in because that's the other thing. You have these giant trucks with huge rhino crates on the back that you have to get as close mm-hmm. to the animal as possible. And so it is possible also to kind of half wake them up and and sedatedly walk them mm-hmm. to to crates, which is kind of wow. neat. Yeah. But if you're in a really thickly um, forested area or an area with dense bush, mm-hmm. then that's not practical. So get the crate in, right. get the rhino in front of the crate, wake the rhino up. They'd go into the crate. You'd close them up, lift the crate onto the truck, and then drive to wherever you're going, where the bomas are, and then literally just open the doors mm-hmm. of the crates and let the rhinos walk out. Uh, and then actually tr- mm-hmm. moving them for their big translocation, we – would sometimes drive. We've flown. We had once I moved to Zoo Rhino from England to Tanzania, and that was on a truck onto mm-hmm. a ferry on one plane to Central Africa <laughs> to offload other cargo. Then on to Nairobi. We overnighted at the airport <laughs> in Nairobi. We got on another plane and flew into the dirt airstrip, the bush airstrip in Tanzania, and then got them back on the truck and to the bomas there. So that was a that was a few days long. And then we, you know, sometimes it's just wow. really long drives, two or three days on the back of a truck. Yeah, the logistics of all this, like just insane. Logistics, money and preparation, the amount of money and preparation that goes into starting a population of rhinos to just receiving one or two rhinos is insane. Right. Yeah. yeah like and it's just all for a stupid horn that has no medical value. It makes me so yeah. mad. It makes I me keep so mad. offering to save my oh. toenails to send to these people because they're going to get just as much benefit from it. But oh, I'll do it like, for free. I want to send just ibuprofen. Right. And, yeah. <laughs> it's like Angie and I joke about ibuprofen, Viagra, yep. you know, whatever medicines we can find and just ship them to Asia and say, here, here, just leave the rhinos right. alone. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's, oh yeah, it's crazy though. It just, so many people doing so much for these animals. And it's just, that is the message that I like to, to yeah. send to the listeners is, you know, there are people like you out there every day doing this and then, you know, risking your life, you know, you are in a risky situation and then mm-hmm. those guards. And that's one thing that I have to say that my, I have a lot of really good friends and family still involved in conservation in rhino conservation specifically. Mm-hmm. And, it seems like it would get disheartening, but they're all so passionate. They're all so dedicated. They're so right. hardworking and they're, they're not going to give up. And it's incredible. It's so commendable that right. they're able to continue this with the attitude that they have. Right. Right. And, you know, and it's like, you're going to, it's like a war. You're going to lose sometimes and, um, win. So I, I guess one of the things I want to ask is, did you have a favorite rhino? Or any good rhino stories that you like to tell? <laughs> oh my gosh, we could be here all night. Um, yeah, yeah, that's the point. That's the point. <laughs> I have. I I always said no favorites. You know, with my I moved anywhere from. Um, well, I think the my minimum was one rhino. My maximum was twelve at one time that I had. And wow, you know, there are always ones that you develop a special relationship with, like a lot of mm-hmm. you know pet parents, zookeepers, anyone who's ever worked with animals, you know, you get these special bonds with individuals or so. Yeah, there, there were a mm-hmm, lot of them. I'm mm-hmm. trying to think of, of anyone off the top of my head, but just one of the um, really neat stories 
was the one girl who came from the zoo and it was it was incredible mm-hmm. because she was one at the zoo that you know she's very selective about who her friends were she either liked you or she didn't mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um she yeah, yeah. was you know <laughs> she had kind of an attitude she was the perfect black rhino she was the birds would alarm call at the zoo she'd be up and alert and the ears would be twitching and going and you know those mm-hmm. are all signs that this girl's she's gonna make it she's she's a a smart lady right. so Yeah. And to be able to go through the steps and see her become a wild rhino again, or not again, she Mm -hmm. was born in the zoo, Mm -hmm. to see her become a wild rhino was incredible. And, And that for me, I would say every single time was the best and the hardest part with, mm-hmm. you know, I, I got the best parts of working in a zoo. I got to know the individual animals. I got to develop mm-hmm. a relationship with them. I got to have fun with them. I got to see their mm-hmm. personalities. I got to see mm-hmm. them spin and bounce and yeah, act yeah. like big giant goobers. <laughs> and then I got to watch them walk out the gate and be rhino. Right. And every single time. I mean, that's, that's why I don't know that I could go back and work with them in a zoo because that mm-hmm. feeling that you get of – and there's always a fear that something's going to happen to them, whether it's poaching, right. whether it's being killed by another animal. You yeah, never really know, me. but they're out there being rhinos. And, oh, right. it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and that's – I mean I think most zoos or conservation zoos involved in conservation, that's the goal, especially mm-hmm. working with you know endangered species – and Angie and I, you know, we talked about how the roles of zoos have changed over the last 20, 30 years, you know, where they're really becoming more involved with conservation. So to take a zoo-born rhino released into the wild, I mean, that's that's the goal, right? I mean, that's what we want or we should want. Right. And it's, it's – so something to keep in mind is that it's not – just like a lot of wild animals don't necessarily adapt to captivity mm-hmm. very well, the reverse is also true. Mm-hmm. So the male that came out with her – ended up being killed by an elephant. Oh, wow. And it was not his first altercation with an elephant. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He didn't have the same awareness or instinct or I don't don't know what it was. He was missing something Mm -hmm. that allowed him to identify an elephant as a threat. Right. And and, uh, like I said, it happened more than once. He didn't have the same natural behaviors that she had and natural responses, I should Mm -hmm, say, mm -hmm. to elephants or alarm calls or anything like that and 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 that's hard so realistically if we only had rhinos in zoos i don't know Mm -hmm. how feasible it would be to restock the wild only with captive populations basically because of the amount of money resources time that goes into it and you also have to understand that you may have to life manage some of these individuals for a lifetime because if you take them to Mm -hmm. the wild and they don't adapt then what? So then right, a lot of these right. conservation projects, how do you plan for lifelong management of individuals, essentially a zoo in mm-hmm. Africa where, you know, right. so it's a huge challenge. It is. It is. And it's like this whole extinction crisis. It just, as, from my perspective as a scientist, it just is so maddening because you're mm-hmm. absolutely right. Like I look at the Przewalski horse as a great example And it would be interesting to even, you know, study black-footed ferret behavior, you know, taken out of the wild, extinct in the wild, all brought into captivity, losing those natural behaviors. Because you would think that male rhino would would have learned that from mama out in the wild. Like, oh, you don't mess with a a big elephant. You know, they can can kill you. You know, you don't mess with this. This is what you eat. This is where you go to, to drink. 
And so when they don't have those experiences, when they get put in the wild, it's a struggle. You know, mm-hmm. I think, and, and maybe I know at some point we'll do zebra because Angie, you know, <laughs> want to do grabbies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's with the grevies, they've had trouble reintroducing them in the wild. You know, you would think just a hoofstock. Oh, go out there and eat grass. Oh, right. no, it's yeah, yeah, it it's a challenging, complicated process. And then if you, you know, I don't know if you've had any experience with predator reintroduction, but that's got to be a headache. Yeah, I I I know people who have done it and mm-hmm. are currently involved with it. And yeah, it's I mean, with with the two black rhino from arrival in Africa, um, it was in stages close to two years before they were fully wild. I stayed Mm -hmm, with them six mm -hmm. months, but they were still being very intensively monitored in Mm -hmm. smaller, I don't want to say enclosures because there were, they were ginormous fenced off areas, but Mm -hmm. smaller than wild. Um, in that part of East Africa, there weren't fences between national parks. So, you know, it's pretty Mm -hmm, open. mm -hmm. So they wanted to make sure that they Mm -hmm. were a hundred percent before they really let them go too far. Um, yeah. So it, it takes, it takes a lot of, a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of resources. And with the very possible chance that you may not be successful and then you owe it to that rhino to then manage it for the rest of its life appropriately. No, uh, that's tough. It's tough. It's tough. And you know, I, it's a lot of research mm-hmm. needs to be done too, you know, where, and again, we don't have the money. We, I mean, it just to, I can imagine how many millions of dollars it, it, it costs to relocate those rhinos. So to, to go out there, but you know, we need more money in that type of research. Anyways, I don't want to go, go down that road. Um, I, I don't know if you want to talk about this or not. I don't know. How did you feel about that guy that paid 350 grand to go coal that rhino? So I'm, I, I'm not totally anti hunting, but I can say for sure that right. in Africa, especially, a lot of the money that is said to go to conservation does not go to conservation. And that's just how it works there. Mm-hmm. It's corrupt. It's, you know, so it's all well and good to say that you're going to raise all this money. I, I, my friends, my best friends work at a project in Zambia, the one that Angie and John came to see. And there's a professional hunter that works around or borders that, that, um, property. And he has raised a lot of money through hunting associations and clubs for scouts, for education programs, it can be good. But Mm -hmm. I've also had a millionaire owner of a hunting concession who was a custodian for black rhinos and couldn't answer any of my questions about how many I was, I was in, we were moving rhinos to his farm and he couldn't answer any Mm -hmm. of my questions about, well, how many rhinos do you have and how often do you see them? Which most places with basic monitoring systems in place know those answers. And he's like, Oh, I don't know. I really like someone to come and develop a, a, like a a monitoring program for us, but we can't, you, you know, that'd be great if you could stay and do that, but we can't afford to pay you. Oh, okay. Sure. And it's like, (laughs) Yeah. yeah, and sorry, but I just look yeah. around. I don't believe that yeah, <laughs> yeah, when yeah. you're doing hunting. So I understand the idea behind it, and I'm not saying it never works because like that one hunter I spoke to, he has raised a lot of money and he's done a lot of good for that area. Mm-hmm. But then uh, the hunting permits, 
are corrupt. They've decimated Tanzania's lion populations and totally screwed up the genetics there because they're giving more permits than what they have individuals. And so in order for that to be a valid fundraising thing, I feel like there needs to be a lot more cleanup in right. more politics and business yeah. in Africa. Um, right. So it's not the worst idea in theory, but it's not a good idea, I don't think, right now. Yeah, it's how they're portraying it. It isn't. It isn't going to conservation, right? So, uh, you, talking about conservation, what do you think about that that guy that's farming southern white rhinos in South Africa? He's. Uh, I've I've looked into him a little bit. It's an interesting idea, but mm-hmm. I think he's just in it for the money rather than the conservation aspect. I don't yeah. know if you have any experience with that. My gut is to agree with you on that. Yeah. Uh, also, because I feel like. And I'm not an economist. I don't know what drives the market. Mm-hmm. But I feel like if the people who believe that these horns are so powerful and medicinal, surely a wild rhino horn is going to be more powerful and medicinal than a farmed rhino horn. What's, what's oh, to prevent that from happening? I mean, they've yeah. said in the past that one horned rhino horn is double potent because they only have one horn so it just seems to me that it would be a logical step to say well wild horn is much more powerful than farmed horn so of course you're going to go to lynx to make sure you get wild rhino horn Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and honestly again i'm not an economist but i i don't feel like there's enough supply to fuel the demand right right yeah yeah with what we do have in captivity yeah, and it's, you know, with the Asian markets booming and their economies booming, that is where the demand is, is really increasing. And then you're seeing, you know, animals getting poached or trafficked, you know, because they have the money, the disposable income to afford mm-hmm. these things. So maybe think of the synthetic rhino horn flooding the market with that, that, you know, there's a company out there trying to make it. And, and I don't know. I mean, you know, you're more with the animals. This is more big, broader issues, but it's interesting to, to talk to somebody that's actually touched, you know, and given, you know, blood, sweat and tears to these animals. You know, what do you think about that? The synthetic stuff? Yeah, I'm, I'm torn with that as well. You know, if it saves a bunch of rhinos right now, fantastic, but we're not really getting to the root of the problem here. And there's always going to be a demand. And I feel like eventually, you know, I see all these, you know, people doing all these big internet schemes and like the amount of brain power Mm -hmm. that goes into being ahead of, you know, law enforcement is much more mm-hmm. than anything I could come up with. But um, right. I feel like it probably wouldn't be too long before that was somehow identified. And, you know, then you're back to square one again. So it, it's a toss up because how quickly are we going to lose all of our rhinos? So is this a good kind of bandaid that will help us save a bunch of rhinos right now until we figure out how mm-hmm. to get to the root of the problem? Or is it better time and money better spent just trying to get to the root of the problem, which obviously we've all been doing for a really long time. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we might be gaining ground, but it's a really slow process. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's tough. It is. And I think you're right. It's going to where the demand's at. I think that's where the the pressure needs Mm -hmm. to come because if, if there's no demand, the supply will go down, you know, and yeah, for the species sake, the, in the news in the last couple of weeks, and that's why I'm kind of excited to talk to you now, the death of Sudan, you know, the northern white rhino. And I did see, you know, on Facebook, you talked about, hey, this is great. It's in the news. But 
they're blowing the headlines out like all the white rhinos are dead, which mm-hmm. isn't true, right? Yeah, and even even if the headline's 100% accurate that the last male northern white right. rhino has passed away, people don't read that. People read the white rhinos are extinct, right. which, again, I guess it's good to get some attention to it, but it's not right. We have 20,000 white rhino that need protection. So let's not just say, oh, this is mm-hmm. awful, it's devastating, rhinos are gone. Oh, well, No, yeah. let's turn it around and say, he's gone. You know, he's a pretty awesome representative of a subspecies of a larger right. species that really needs our help. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I mean, the, what, the Javan, 50 left, Sumatran, you know, 50 to 100 left. Mm-hmm. The Blacks, which you've worked with, what, less than 5,000, right? They're yeah, I, like think it's right at, I think it's right about 5,000 now. 5,000 yeah. now? Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's ah, fascinating work. So any other cool animal stories besides rhinos? You had it in Africa. Any honey badger stories? <laughs> That's I, my I favorite. The honey couple. badger. I did see it. I got very excited yeah. when I honey badgers, pangolins. Um, oh my gosh, I would get so excited when I saw them. Yeah. I did have um, an interesting. So I was at the rhino bomas with the rhinos, and I had a, a young two-year-old rhino. It was just her to be released back out into the wild, and I had I had moved my tent from the outside into one of the empty bomas, mm-hmm. and we had lions that would come by oh, and you uh, hear them from far away and you just, Oh, that sound, yeah. just, you hear it, you feel it in your chest almost before you just, oh, oh. <laughs> and they're, they're coming closer and you can hear them coming closer. And, and I'm thinking, you know, it's amazing where your mind goes in mm-hmm. these seconds and minutes of, of thinking that, you know, potential for something bad to happen. Yeah. You might die. So, yeah. Right. Well, my thought is going, so our water troughs were dug into the ground and they were fairly big. I could actually climb in and out of the bomas through the water troughs. And I was terrified that these lions were going to come in and either jump over the boma or go through the water trough and get in with this little rhino. Now, she wasn't a baby. She was a two-year-old black rhino. So she was... She's a big girl. She had, you know, yeah. some some spit and vinegar. So she's, you know, yeah. she could probably take care of herself, but she's my baby. So exactly. I'm I'm going through all these plans of how I'm going to fend off these lions from this little rhino and what <laughs> I'm going to do to protect her. In the meantime, I'm in my tent. Um, <laughs> but at this point inside the bomas and they're just getting closer and they're getting closer and the adrenaline is right. worse than anything that has that ever happened to me. Um but I did, um, you know, I did shout a little bit and I got my flashlight out and kind of waved around. They did come right up to the Bowmans, but they were just checking it out. You know, we were in yeah, their turf. Yeah. They just wanted to see what was going on. And, right, you know, right, they didn't want right. any part of either of us. But I was I was convinced that I was going to have to somehow jump in and save this <laughs> ginormous two-year-old rhino. Um, oh, God. But honestly, yeah, with the, the animal stuff, I never really felt unsafe. You know, I was smart. Mm-hmm. I was taught well from the people I worked with what to do, how to respond. I'd been charged by various things. Mm-hmm. I did have, when I, the first year I was there, I had the hand rhino that were being rehabilitated. I did have two of those rhino poached while I was off site one time. Oh. And I think that was the only time I was there when I really felt unsafe. And it was because mm-hmm. of the human aspect. Yeah, and it's how yeah, money corrupts. It just uh, it makes yeah. people do horrible, horrible things. Uh, so, one of the things I always like to ask, especially people like like you, that give so much for these animals, and it, it's funny you talk about not seeing people for months. 
Um, I interviewed my friend here, Jesse. I don't know if you've ever met Jesse Golden back in Florida. He runs in the same circles we do, but he worked at White Oak and I interviewed him about Okapi. And he said being out with the Okapi every day, that was like his only interaction. And he became like the Okapi whisperer. He didn't use that word, but you know, like he just, they were his friends. So right. I, I see Allison, the rhino whisperer. You know? Yeah. That's how your only friends you had were yeah. the rhinos and, uh, yeah, the yeah. pangolin that would come by every now and then. I did, I did have a little frog that stayed in my house once we became quite close. <laughs> Hi. Every night when I'd come home. You should have kissed him. Out. Yeah. Right. Even, <laughs> even if it became your prince. Yeah. The, you know, so somebody like you who has given so much, how do we convince people that we shouldn't let these species go extinct, that it is worth the fight, it is worth the money, it is worth the investment, you know, where some were like, oh, just let nature take its course, you know, your perspective on that. Well, I think the biggest argument with letting nature take its course is that it's not nature. You know, this is all generally for most species, I'm sure there are probably some that are in decline that are for natural causes, but most people are, or excuse me, most species are threatened because of human activity. And especially when you look at poaching, Mm -hmm. I mean, habitat encroachment is obviously huge. Um, We're taking away their places to live, but poaching, I mean, it's walking up to an animal and killing it. You can't get more, much more unnatural Mm -hmm. than that and it's for for money it's not because i'm starving it's not because i need to feel feel, feed Mm -hmm. my family it's because i want cash in hand and i'm going to kill this individual to get it um so i think the nature taking its course argument doesn't really hold up but it it is hard there are a lot of causes there are a lot of issues in this world there are a lot of groups and Mm -hmm. that that need money that need attention and I, i I always said I had one, I once did a presentation in South Africa and I had a man criticize me for being an advocate for rhinos and not Mm -hmm. for baboon spiders or something. And I said, well, you know, I said it in my ideal world, every species has an advocate. And the more passionate Mm -hmm. I am about the species I'm dedicating my life to, the better for those individuals. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. I hope there are more of those people and I hope they're able to bring the attention because, you know, one of the nice things about protecting one of the charismatic megafauna, you know, Mm -hmm. your glamour mammals or these big animals that are kind Mm -hmm. of on the forefront of conservation is that if you protect them, you're protecting everything that's in the area with them. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not, I just don't want them to survive. I want everything in their ecosystem to survive. So, um, you know, I, I think it's hard to get people on board. I think obviously education, as we already spoke to, is hugely important. Introducing humane education in schools at an early age and, you know, trying to get teach kids to be more compassionate and educated about their choices. Mm-hmm. You know, kids go home and teach their parents. I nagged my parents about recycling when yeah. I was a kid growing yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> they cut up yeah, more. Yeah, yeah. They didn't cut up six pack rings before yeah. <laughs> I learned about it yeah, in school. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that's a great place to start. Obviously the kids don't have money though. And it's adults that mm-hmm. donate to, to causes, to research, to conservation. And, 
you know, I, I don't know. I, I feel like if, if everyone just does something for someone else or, or another group and yeah, I feel like there's tons of animal people. Unfortunately, the animal people probably don't make that much. So right, we don't, yeah. <laughs> their we don't ability to donate yeah. is, is limited, but the more people that just talk to other people about it and share their experiences and share their mm-hmm. passion can only be a good thing for the, the right. animals we're trying to protect. No, that's a, yeah, it's great points. It's all great points. And, and yeah, that's the one thing I'm, I'm really learning in, in doing this last few months is when you do save one major species, you know, the charismatic megafauna, like, uh, Okapi, one of the things we talked about saving Okapi, when you, you know, the World Heritage Site in the Congo, because of the Okapi is, is preserved. And now you're saving, you know, fruit bats. Right. Is one thing, you know, we kind of made the link to, and then all the amphibians in the area, things like that. So, you fight to save rhinos and elephants, mm-hmm. you know, the big five in, in Africa, you know, all of those smaller cats and smaller predators, honey badgers. I love honey yeah. badgers, pangolins, all these things that we've talked about. So yeah, it's, yeah, that's awesome. So what's next for you? Where, where, where's Allison going around the world next? Um, I was working uh, with graduate programs in veterinary forensics and wildlife forensics. And I've just started working with an organization who does more hands-on veterinary forensics. So I'm pretty excited about that. Awesome. It's, um, you know, gives me a feeling like I'm doing something, something good in the, in the big grand scheme of things and helping, helping animals that mm-hmm, really need it. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited. Right. Yeah. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. So is there any, you know, any parting wisdom to the listeners on how they can support either, you know, not your, just your efforts, but support rhinos in general, any favorite foundations or? Sure. I, I would say, you know, not just with rhinos, but with any, any causes that you donate to, uh, obviously do your research. Um, but the, the biggest ones for rhinos would be Save the Rhino International and International Rhino Foundation. Save the Rhino International is based in the UK. Save the Rhino, um, excuse me, IRF International Rhino Foundation is based here in the US. And they both do a lot of work providing grants to a lot of really awesome long-term rhino conservation organizations. I've worked with both of them with multiple projects under both of them. And they do a phenomenal job at getting money where it needs to go. So those would be the two big ones for sure. Good. good. Okay. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll definitely put them on the, the show note links again, just so people know where to go and, and look it up. But Allison, <laughs> I mean, I, we could be here all night. So <laughs> I, uh, I really want to thank you for your time. It was wonderful having you. And I know, you know, I, I think Angie will probably want to interview you in the next year again or something and go into more stories, you know, cause you've got a million. Oh of them. yeah. Yeah. Um, and I do, uh, Angie told me to make a point to ask about rhino sounds cause I do have two yeah. rhino recordings <laughs> okay. on my phone. Yeah. She yeah. told me I might have to do it myself, but I do have two individuals that I've, I've got here. That yeah. I yeah. Play if, for you. Yeah. If you could play for them, the, the, the listeners would love that. All right. This is. Uh, this is an adult bull. Okay. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Um, and then this is a younger bull. <laughs> it sounds so like a sound, bird almost. Yeah, they sound like when my yeah. phone goes off, people think that I have kitten sounds on my phone. But um, 
<laughs> it's interesting. They have a ton of different vocalizations. And uh-huh. that to me, that's usually like the baby rhinos nagging mom. But when they're adults, I feel like they must do it as, as more of an anxiety thing. And this is, this is, this was my dream mm. project when I was there. I have so many, I have a mm. little digital recorder with thousands of rhino mm-hmm. sounds on it because I really wanted to analyze the sounds and do a research project mm-hmm. on the different sounds that rhino make. Um, cause they obviously do the huffing and the puffing when they fight, there's grunting, they right. squeal. Then they have this when they're really fighting and their like mouths are open and they're drooling. They have this bone chilling scream that they do as well. That's just oh, awful. God. Um, yeah. but yeah, I yeah. love, I love my boys, my daily doses of hearing the boys <laughs> when my phone goes off. It's nice. <laughs> I, I bet you got to miss oh, yeah. them too. Uh, yeah, it's... for sure. It yeah. was, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't change, change a thing. You know, I'm still plan on, not planning on coming out of school until I had my PhD and, you know, 20 years later, mm-hmm. whatever it is, and I still only have a master's, but yeah. I, I would not have changed a thing. Oh. And, you know, financially it was a struggle and it was worth every, every ounce of it. I wouldn't, wouldn't change it at all. And I've, right, you know, right. made lifelong friends and even having John and Angie come out, you know, that's the Africa I think of. I've kind of become a snob now when people ask me about going to Africa and it's like, well, do you want to yeah. get the, the Africa experience or do you want real Africa? Because real Africa, yeah. you're going to go to a place like right. that and sit in the middle of the bush and you, you'll you see stuff, but you might not see the big five, but it's going to be stuff that's wandering past you mm-hmm. and you might, you know, you'll, you'll mm-hmm. see things, but it's going to be less showcased right. than you know a trip to the biggest tourist camp in kruger where, which is also awesome yeah, you know it's yeah. not bad it's just how do you want to experience it's africa it? and yeah exactly and and i've having six game viewing vehicles around one rhino or a, oh, yeah. a group of wild dogs does not appeal to me whatsoever i want to no. be sitting out in the bush in the quiet maybe i don't see anything for two days but you know, that's what it's all about. So. Or, or I'm thinking sitting in a boma with a pride of lions right outside sniffing for you. That's, that's the real Africa. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, it's funny. Even, that's, that was another thing I forgot to, it was the most ridiculous thing in that story was that I even had like, I had brought some lasagna back from camp with me as in Tupperware. And I was like, they're after my lasagna. I'll just throw my lasagna outside. It's like, yeah. no, you moron. Like, they're, yeah. they're not cruising the bush for lasagna. Like, lasagna. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. All by yourself protecting that rhino with a flashlight. Yes. Right. <laughs> Allison. Well, Hey, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Sure, thanks um, for having me. This- yeah, Allison, we, we, we've got to do this again. Uh, take care. Me and, too. uh, I, I look forward to keeping tabs on you through Angie. Great. All right. Thank you. Have a good night.